Hello and welcome to the Mangal Media Show in cooperation with Root Radio Live. I am Mangal Media Editor-in-Chief F.L. Evans. To learn more about us and follow the articles discussed on the show, please visit our website www.mangalmedia.net. Mangal Media is supported entirely by reader donations. If you like our content and would like to see more of it, please check out our pledge options from our Patreon site. A monthly pledge of over $5 will give our readers digital access to our first short story project, Guide to Every City. In today's episode, I will be joined by writer and journalist Joey Ayou. You can read Joey's previous article, The Future Palestinian Present, on our website. Today, we will talk about an article he's planning to write for us on the recent harbor explosion in Beirut. Hello, Joey. Welcome to the Mongol Media Show on uh, Root Radio. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure. So um, you have you have messaged me a few days ago, uh, saying that you wanted to write an article about about the explosion in Lebanon. I'm going straight into the subject. Um, what what kind of idea did you have in mind? Well, as a first, uh, my first instinct was just to write something just to get kind of just get it out. Uh, I have been, I usually have a personal diary and I just write my thoughts in it, but I haven't been able to do so recently because I'm not really finding the words. It's a mixture of, you know, just rage and uh, heartbreak and then some more rage and then heartbreak and then just these two emotions. And then obviously at some point, you feel like numb and tired and not really sure what to do about it. And especially because I'm outside of Lebanon at the moment, I'm currently based in Switzerland doing my studies here. And there's also the kind of like the added layer in some ways of not really knowing in some ways what you're mourning, not really having something visual to, to grieve uh, in some ways. Um, so I wanted to write this article. Uh, Mangal Media felt like a natural home for it. Uh, I did get some um, uh, like proposals to write in other places, and there are some that I'm gonna uh, contribute to on different topics. But on this specifically, I wanted to be on Mangal Media, and so the topic is really. Um, I titled it after a, well, the working title for now anyway, is the title of another piece that was written on Hong Kong uh, by Wilfred Chen on The Nation. And the title of his piece was The Infinite Heartbreak of Loving Hong Kong. And I just changed Hong Kong and I put Beirut. So mine is called The Infinite Heartbreak of Loving Beirut, uh, for now anyway. And the reason why I even went there is because I couldn't find anything I couldn't find the words to use. And so I used his words in some ways as the title anyway. Uh, the topic of the, of the article is a bit different. To sort of latch on to um, what he had to say about Hong Kong. So also struggling from a distance, a lot of things happening there. Uh, he's based in New York, if I'm not mistaken. And just also kind of seeing all of these developments and wondering at the same time, how is it going to affect you personally? How is it going to affect your country? How is it going to affect your family, friends, and so on? And that's where the article comes from. For me right now, I'm in a uh, rather uh, uneasy position. I know that I've been on the radar of the government uh, a number of times uh, before. The last time I left Lebanon to come here in Switzerland was in February, and I knew that I was already in these on the and so while leaving, I had a number of like anxiety, I already have anxiety issues. And so I had a number of like uh, quasi attacks, like anxiety attacks uh, while on my way to the airport because the airport is controlled by the army and general security. And I didn't know if they were going to arrest me or not. And my priority at the time was just to physically get here so that I can, uh, well, feel safer for now anyway. And right now, uh, the explosion was one thing. And because we sort of have seen previous explosions in Lebanon, uh, but that were of a more um, car bomb nature. Or obviously, if Israel or the Syrian regime were bombing, then that was 
more direct kind of war situation if you want. So when the explosion happened in Lebanon, I immediately thought that it was just a bomb. I just thought that, um, well, you know, this is probably Israel because there's been some some stuff going on between Israel and Hezbollah in, in Syria, for example, and there might have been, you know, some tit for tat, and this was the tit, and there might be a tat at some point, and it kind of fit within the narrative, within the timeline, and in your mind, and that's sort of, I'm not sure the word is easier, but it it makes it more um, manageable to rationalize in some ways. It's not necessarily easier. Uh, with this, it's very, very difficult to rationalize. There's, there isn't really anything to rationalize, that's the thing. The nature of an explosion that has been compared to Chernobyl, uh, which I think is a good comparison, better than some people have compared it to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which I don't think is a good comparison. But to Hiroshima is a good comparison because it's it's really the recklessness of the authorities that caused it uh, to happen in the first place. It didn't have to happen. There was no um, military aim for it. There was no uh, political aim for it even. None of these people necessarily benefit from it from it happening. They, it just happened because they were reckless. It happened because they didn't think about it. It happened because they're very corrupt. And that's very difficult. That's kind of more difficult in some ways to to digest, I suppose, or to rationalize, to to give it a name. There's no, it doesn't fit in any story. It doesn't fit in any um, symbolism other than the symbolism of Beirut is being destroyed. And up until now, Beirut being destroyed was filled, as I mentioned, by political actors, you know, Israel, Hezbollah, the Syrian regime, the various sectarian parties during the war. There were human beings basically doing the destruction. In this case, it's like, well, it's, it's the human beings who put it there, who put the, the ammonium nitrate in the port of Beirut. But as far as we know, anyway, it really seems to have been an accident in that sense. And this is in some ways more difficult to digest because the, the damage is so great, so permanent. There will be some things that could be rebuilt for sure. And many people are donating and all of that is good. But there are certain things that cannot be rebuilt. It's just not possible. There are certain buildings that are now structurally unsound and cannot be fixed. They will have to be brought down. There are just restaurants and cafes and bars and, you know, all of those places that will not be able to survive. They were already struggling with COVID-19 and the economic crisis, and they would not be able to survive this. And in some ways, when I left, I felt that something might happen in the near future, just in, in terms of like some kind of civil conflict, something. And so I was already mentally preparing myself that when I leave, uh, which so when I left in February, that this might be the last time. And I've been feeling this for a number of times now. I went back to Beirut like it does now, like six or seven times in the past five years. And every time there was a sort of increasing feeling that this might be the last time. And now I'm talking to you, not really knowing if February was really the last time, to be honest. I'm, I hope it's not, of course, um, but I no longer have that certainty. In terms of, I was just thinking while you were talking about comparing uh, the explosion in Beirut to other explosions, and you were saying that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were not appropriate ones. And yeah. uh, I, I just thought of um, the, uh, the disaster after Hurricane Katrina. It, what do you think about yeah. comparing it to that? Because uh, there, there was this big dispute about whether this was a natural disaster or whether it was kind of caused actively by human negligence yeah for sure i mean even like hurricane katrina the the damage that it did it did not have to be this bad so like the the the, the political side of this of course is the the fact that her uh, the area uh is predominantly african-american there's a lot of poverty there at the time and it's even worse now and it just wasn't seen as a top priority for the government. And it took, it took them a long time to come to their aid. And there was these horrific images that I think many of us remember of like people on their rooftops and all of those things saying, help us and that kind of thing. And in Beirut, like the, the main analogies, the reason why I thought of, or why I'm not the only one, like a number of people thought of, of Chernobyl is uh, the political side of it, I think. 
I'm not entirely sure if one might say that Katrina changed the entirety of American politics, unfortunately. But Chernobyl is credited by Gorbachev himself as having kind of laid the foundation for the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, you know, all metaphors are not perfect and uh, no comparison is ever going to be uh, appropriate necessarily. They're just useful to a certain extent. For me, I, I, I mentioned Chernobyl a number of times, but I'm not kind of going with it in any of my pieces or anything like this because I do think it's also limited. But the reason why I went with it in those three times is because I really don't think Hiroshima and Nagasaki are appropriate comparisons uh, at all because Hiroshima and Nagasaki's were extermination completely. Hmm. Uh, attacks, obviously, those were nuclear attacks. They were attacks. very deliberate, of course. Exactly. They were like explicit and deliberate. And so that's why for me, I mean, I can understand where people like the, the governor of Beirut, who is extremely corrupt himself, uh, he did compare it to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I, I understand where this comes from. Uh, the, the mushroom cloud effect is um, terrifying, uh, and I can only say I can say this like even looking at it through videos. I can't even imagine those who were in Beirut when they saw it. Uh, so I don't blame them for making those comparisons, but I, I guess I'm trying to be a bit more careful with my comparisons. But in any case, um, the thing that we can say about uh, Hurricane Katrina, for example, is in the aftermath is is really that is the political side of it, the economic side of it the priorities of a state and how there are these entire uh, percentages of the population that are just not viewed as worthy enough to, to be mentioned, really, or to care about in that, in that sense. And in Lebanon, it's Beirut that was hit. So it's the capital that was hit. And it's not necessarily only the poor who are affected. Excuse me. It's not necessarily only the poor who are affected, although even though obviously they are affected doubly speaking in the sense of like the economic crisis has already been hitting them pretty badly it's just anyone who was physically near the port you know it's it has this equalizing totalitizing um, equalizing totality in some ways and this is why i feel that we need to think about this as a crime as a political crime by the government they knew it was there. We knew that they know. We now know that they knew for sure. The reports have come out since then. They're still denying it, of course. They're going to continue denying it. But uh, the ammonium nitrate did not have to stay in the port of Beirut. That's just a fact. There was no any reason for it to stay there. But they just didn't think about it. It's just gross negligence, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's gross negligence. And it's not even as. Um, you can't glorify it. You can't uh, even demonize it. It's, mm. it's uh, utter idiocy with uh, catastrophic consequences. I was thinking, uh, again, with the, with the comparisons, uh, your idea of comparing it to Chernobyl, one of the first things you said was that Chernobyl was the kind of seed of change in the Soviet Union. It caused the Soviet Union to collapse. I mean, I'm not sure if hope is the right word to use here, but do you believe, I mean, is this comparison because you have some hope about possible changes? Maybe there's a better word for it, but I just can't reach for it right now. But do you yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, I remember having read this in like Gorbachev's memoirs or something like that. It was a, it was mentioned in like one of the history books I used or something along those lines, but it just stuck with me really. And I, I thought about it and then other people already had written articles, so it was easy to link to that as well. And um, I'm not sure because there's no real guarantee that this regime A will fall. And if it does fall, that it will be replaced necessarily with something better. The problem with the sectarian regime in Lebanon, it, does, it, it is that it is beyond just a number of figureheads. Uh, the figureheads, we, we can focus on them and we should focus on them because otherwise um, it just becomes too impossible and too complicated to, to really do anything. It becomes more like uh, debilitating and uh, demoralizing, to be honest. Um, it is true that I think at this point, as protesters, uh, as someone who participated in the 2015 movement and some of the smaller ones before that, and in the obviously in the October 2019 one, the revolution, I, I think that our expectations are so low 
that at this point we would accept or at least tolerate anything that could be seen as functional. Because I feel that, and this is something that maybe other people from uh, places that haven't seen this kind of violence in a long time, for example, so parts of the West, for example, um, what they don't understand is that it's not that we think that getting rid of these people would mean amazing news overnight. It's more that we are just painfully aware that nothing can be done while they are there because we have tried that before. This is not the first protest movement. I'm 29 and I have participated in eight or nine different ones over the years. There are people who are older than me who have participated in more than that. We're talking about a war regime at the end of the day. These are the warlords that have made the war in the first place. These are the warlords that were allied with Israel and these were the warlords that were allied with the Assad regime. These are the warlords that destroyed Beirut. Beirut was not just destroyed by foreign powers, it was destroyed by uh, Lebanese militias. And they are the ones who uh, got the cake at the end of the war. They are the ones who, they got the amnesty law that uh, ex ex uh, exempted them from accountability for the most part. And they are the ones who just removed their military fatigues for the most part, except Hezbollah, of course. And they, um, they joined a government. They are the, the president is a former warlord. The, the speaker of parliament is a former warlord. The only ones who have not been warlords are the prime ministers in recent years, but that's because they come more from the oligarchy uh, business side of things, if you want, the ones that have links to the Gulf usually. And the same goes for the, you know, the generals of the army and a number of the high-ranking ministers and uh, leaders of parties and all of those guys. And they're all men, of course. Uh, um, they are uh, former warlords. That's how they think. They didn't, they didn't stop thinking this way. And so 170, I think we're almost closer to 100 people uh, dead so far. That's the sort of number that they have personally uh, killed. You know, like they have hundreds of people uh, that they have caused to die during the war. And I don't think that 30 years later, this is going to start, uh, you know, tickling their conscience, really. And that's why I'm, I honestly think now is not the time for uh, calm. And now is not the time for um, trying to negotiate some settlement or anything like this. I genuinely believe, and obviously I need to be very careful with this, but I genuinely believe that uh, violence is justified. I genuinely believe that there's no, there's nothing else that can be done. And by violence, many things can be done, can be said. Obviously, what I mean by this is just strategic. I mean that people need to continue protesting. We need to fight back against the cops and the army and the security forces. We need to ex uh, enact some kind of, of cost because right now there's no cost. They do whatever they want. It's free. It's a free for all. The entirety of our country is a free for all for these guys, and that's how they used to. And I don't think uh, other than some kind of magic outside pressure, which is just not going to happen, not in the way we'd want it anyway, uh, nothing really is going to move them other than pressure from the streets, really. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get to that question of uh, international pressure. Uh, that's mm -hmm. been very much debated recently from all okay. different sides. I mean, there's been takes on... Uh, the kind of banal anti-imperialist quote-unquote takes that we're exhausted from. There has been takes which are almost excessively welcoming of an outside... Sorry, Efe, I, I think you cut off a bit if you can... Uh... I'm sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can. I was saying uh, there's been kind of like very like a huge range of takes on the uh, question of outside influence. There's been these... Um, the kind of usual suspects of anti-imperialism saying that, you know, oh, yeah. that any kind of foreign help is absolutely horrible and like, uh, France should be worried about its own native problems or whatever. Or, mm -hmm. I mean, there's been, there's been kind of, within this take, there's been more valid ones and more extreme ones that I'm not going to dissect. Yes, yes, yes. I think. Then there's been the other side of the take, which has been almost kind of excessively welcoming as liberators or whatever, like when Macron arrived. Um, sure. Yeah. So there's, there's, it's really difficult 
to have a healthy take on this and where, where, where well, what I, yeah what i can what i can say really is just try and address them all in in at once in some ways um let's start with the the most um just like spectacle friendly one which is the one that when macron physically went to lebanon that caught the attention of the media that caused a lot of people to talk the pros the cons and everything but what really matters from all of this other than just the spectacle really is what did he say he said that he will come at on the first of september or like the first week of september or something with a new pact to propose to the lebanese government now what's the undertone of that the undertone of that is not that uh whether france should help or not because in most, I mean, we've already gotten the aid uh, that we need for now, for example, and there's going to be more aid to come. So like all of these debates really are pointless. But the question is, what will Macron, for example, just to use him as an example, and I am very skeptical of how much influence he has anyway, but let's just go for that anyway. What will he be pushing for? And more importantly, what will be accepted? He can push for whatever he wants, but short of like threatening a military invasion, which is just not going to happen in Lebanon. Uh, it's not even desirable that. No, no, it's not. It's not. It's <laughs> it's just not. It's not even on the cards. You know, it's just people making up these scenarios online, and I try just not to take the bait in some ways. Um, he just gave them. Let's put it this way: He gave these people. He came to Lebanon on like the next day, I think, on the fifth of August. Um, he gave them a month to prepare themselves. But the thing is that the month is more than enough for them to prepare themselves. Now they can get their house in order. They can maintain, they can create the narratives that they want. They have implemented an emergency law in which the, they gave sweeping powers to the military, uh, which is as of now indefinite, really. And uh, I guess I don't need to explain to anyone from the region what military rule can look like. It's not usually a pretty thing. And um, but that's, that's, that's what he gave them. He gave them the time that they needed. So the irony is that the anti-imperialists, and I'm using those in quotation, mm -hmm. what they're not fully understanding is that all of these people are already on the same side. They are not understanding that it benefits them all for Lebanon to be quote-unquote stable. And they don't need to believe me. They just need to listen to the ex-foreign minister himself, Gibran Basid. Gibran Bastille, who's an ally of Hezbollah, is pretty notorious in Lebanon as the single most xenophobic politician. He has an obsession with Palestinian refugees and an obsession with Syrian refugees. And in fact, he, he scapegoats Syrian refugees by appealing to the xenophobia already present in Lebanese society against Palestinian refugees. And this is a man who himself has said a number of times, at least a dozen times, I have used him as a citation, if you want, personally, four different times in my articles. Um, he has said that if Lebanon collapses, you, as a New Day Europeans, will have a refugee problem on your hands. Because he knows how to play the game. Mm -hmm. He knows that at the end of the day, the only thing uh, the Europeans right now, the European Union cares about, is not having too many migrants and too many refugees on, on the shores, on the, you know, coming, knocking on Fortress Europe, to use that metaphor. And this is the entire government. The government of Lebanon has used the refugee crisis to receive money from the West. Mm. The money sometimes goes to the refugees, but for the most part, doesn't. It gets sucked up into the NGO world, of course, and then the rest of it just goes to the government. I mean, if anyone thinks that the refugees are doing well, I urge them to just visit the camps in Lebanon and let me know how nine years later they could still be living in these conditions. Mm. And, but this is what we have right now. There is no pro-government and anti-government. They're all pro-government. There is just some people want certain people in government and other people want other people in government. The French are not too fussy about Hezbollah, but the Americans obviously are. And so the Americans apparently might put some extra sanctions this time on allies of Hezbollah. And some people will oppose this and some people will support this. But I can guarantee you that it will make absolutely no difference. As long as uh, I'm talking about targeted sanctions on specific individuals, like, you know, their banking assets in America usually, or they cannot go to America, that kind of sanction. 
uh, I'm not talking about the kind of sanction that people think about when they sanction, which is like starving people, because that's obviously not what we're talking about here. That's another problem, by the way, is that language is so cheapened by how reckless it's used on absolutely everything. But this is where we're at now. So there's no, uh, and I mean, I didn't even talk about those glorifying Macron and whatnot, but like, honestly, it's very easy to mock them. And it's very easy to just say that they, they desire colonialism, whatever, whatever that means. But, you know, so that's true for some of them. That's for sure. Some of them genuinely want that. But I think we should also understand just the level of despair that we're talking about. Absolutely. If, if, if things were fantastic, like if things were fine in Lebanon, and the Lebanese were comfortable traveling, and they could come back, and they just had a stable life. There would, there would, like, it wouldn't even be on the table to talk about this. Regardless, I mean, it's not even going to happen, obviously. But just even talking about this. But people are so caught on, on caught up, sorry, on the narratives that they're used to, and it's so, it's become such a point of focus, especially on social media, which is why, I've, although I use it a lot, I'm actually very uncomfortable with Twitter. Uh, it's become such a point of focus of, it's like, this is my identity now. My identity is anti-imperialist. My identity is pro-French. My identity is pro-whatever. And people just go with, go with it regardless of the facts on the ground. The fact of the matter is that those who are pro-French government and those who are anti-government, uh, anti-French government, for the most part, they're not actually talking about what's happening on the ground. Mm. These are just battle of ideas being uh, played out online, really. It has... If you ask like my mother or like my, some of my cousins and whatnot, no one gives a shit about any of this. They really don't. It doesn't matter. Whatever they will get right now, and this is why I mean by, I'm not saying this is a good thing. Huh? I'm not saying this is a good thing that this is the case. I'm just saying that this is how low our expectations, is, expectations are. If right now, let me give you a scenario. If right now, um, next month, let's say in September, by which time the government, Lebanese government, it's very easy. That's, that's what's really depressing. Is it's actually very easy uh, to kind of predict what, or one, one likely scenario, let's say. Uh, today's the 13th of August. We're recording this. This means that by the time the deal is made or whatever, almost uh, three weeks would have passed. That's more than enough time for the government to crack down on whoever they want to crack down. They caused over 700 injured on a single day, and that was before they passed the sweeping uh, laws under this, uh, sorry, the, the sweeping uh, powers given to the military under the, this emergency law. And so it's reasonable to accept, uh, to expect that many more are going to be injured. It's not unlikely that some people are even going to get killed. Usually that doesn't happen as frequently in Lebanon as it does in, in Iraq, for example, just because politically it's not as feasible, let's say. Um, and by the time Macron comes back, or by the time there's another conference on Lebanon, or by the time whatever happens, uh, they would have consolidated their ranks. So if by then uh, the international community, whatever that means, says that these two people must go, and here I'm talking about the president, Michel Aoun, and the speaker of parliament, Nabi Hibirim. They're kind of highly symbolic right now, just because they've been in power for so long. Nabi Hibirim, since 1992, he's been speaker of parliament. And Michel Aoun, uh, although he's been president for four years, he was president or self-appointed president during the war and has been a major political figure for, for since then as well. And if these two leave, and as prime minister, they bring in someone who is widely respected, like Nawaf Salam, who was like, I think, the Lebanese um, ambassador to the UN, kind of like a civil servant type. Uh, from what I understand, generally nice guy, basically. And they just bring in a random, uh, some outsider as president and some outsider as a speaker of parliament. Regardless of what their politics are, many people might accept this because we are just desperate for anything that is not these guys. We just want absolutely anyone who is not the same guys. And that's the thing, is that even if the deal comes back on the 1st of September and whatnot, and they change it and something new happens and whatnot, we're not expecting reconstruction to happen overnight. We're not expecting Lebanon's economic woes, for example, to go overnight. We're not expecting COVID-19 to go anywhere anytime soon. And we're right now in the middle of another wave that's actually worse than the first one. And that was pre-explosion, mind you. And so we're not, we're not, you know, we're not delusional about what's ahead of us. 
no one is expecting things to get better. That's, that's just the truth of it. And that's why it's so difficult to talk about it. This, all of the scenarios that we're discussing, and I can go through like a dozen different scenarios, none of these are good scenarios. We're just ranking them based on which scenario might be just like tolerable for now, really. We're not talking about what might be okay in five or 10 years. We're just talking about now. And even that we're not getting. And how do you think in this situation, um, what do you think about the prospects of international solidarity? What can be done? So a number of things, really. One, um, for whoever has this sort of resources, obviously what is needed are urgent stuff. Like there's a lot of um, GoFundMe accounts and, you know, none of this is sexy. None of this is... Um, you cannot call it anything other than uh, this guy or this woman or this whatever, they need the money. And so whoever has the money, just give them as much as you can. This, this is really the situation we're in right now. Mm -hmm. um, this By is way, like... Just, on just as a parenthesis, there has been like a list of reliable places to donate to, hasn't there? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a number of them. Like obviously with any situation like this, you will have a number of grifters and people just, you know, taking the money really without giving it back. And there's a number of NGOs that I won't name any names because none of this is 100% certain. And so I don't want to be slandering anyone, but uh, usually they don't have a good reputation as to how the money is spent and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So what I'm doing really when I'm asked is I just linked them this Twitter thread by my friend Abir Rattas, uh, and we can link it somewhere as well. And it's just a list of uh, NGOs or um, not even, for the most part, just like groups of people, you know, usually exactly. a handful of people at a time. Grassroots organizations are usually the best ones for this kind of donation. Yes, yes, because it's direct. It's just direct. There's no middleman. There's no uh, red tape really on that front. It's just, you know, Enya Lenya, for example, the, the Ethiopian migrant group, uh, you give them money, they spend the money buying stuff and distributing them to migrant workers and refugees and even uh, ordinary working class folks who are Lebanese citizens. They don't even just limit themselves to, to migrants. Um, you know, it's more direct rather than you spending, uh, giving X amount of money and then a percentage of this is going to go to certain salaried employees and all of that kind of thing of this NGO and that NGO and it ends up being diluted. And so this is, yeah, this is really what I'm uh, recommending really whenever I'm asked on this. And then the other thing is, um, I don't know how to put this very nicely, really, but um, like people who entertain all of these conspiracy theories and um, all of these isms, all of these grand ideologies and obsessed with superstructures and uh, over-determining everything and geopolitics this and geopolitics that and everything is big names and they only listen to what Hezbollah had to say and that what Macron had to say and what Netanyahu had to say, like all of these people, they genuinely need to understand by now that they are doing severe damage to a lot of people, that they are causing really serious harm, like in some cases irreparable harm. I have a lot, I know a lot of close friends and other, others are just like acquaintances that I, I've gotten to know over the years, not just on Lebanon, mind you, like from Syria to Libya to other places who have utterly, completely given up, completely given up on even trying to appeal to anything remotely leftist. These are people who would, if you ask them, identify as socialists or progressives. They are very open-minded on that front. They genuinely believe in social justice. They don't even believe in privatizing anything. They believe in um, everything that is supposed to take all of those leftist boxes. But if you ask them whether they consider themselves leftists, they will tell you absolutely not. And the reason they tell you this has nothing to do with uh, the philosophy, really. It has everything to do with how a lot of self-appointed uh, leftists, online especially, how they're spending their time. It is a, it is a violence. It is an, it, it is an act of violence in itself to wake up to the devastation in Beirut, wake up the next day, realize what just happened, not even realize over the next day, obviously, it's going to take weeks and weeks for people to even comprehend what just happened. I have friends who you can genuinely describe are still under shock, and a, a whole lot of people just got PTSD, which is going to manifest itself 
for years and years to come. This, on top of this, to deal with the immediate urgency of Lebanon and the economic crisis and also being careful wearing masks everywhere and also being careful, like just to give a quick example, I have friends who were injured during the blast and did not go to the hospital because they knew that the hospital were already overwhelmed. And they made that choice. And rightly or wrongly, that doesn't matter. But the point is that everyone who's already there, everyone who's dealing with this, is painfully aware of everything around them. And so on top of and this, all of this is our acts of violence by the government on, 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 on these friends and families and the people in general. On top of this, to then open the internet, open Twitter, which can be, you know, a form of escape if there's nothing happening around you. The internet, in theory, or at least ideally, can be a positive kind of escape for you to calm down, maybe talk to some people who will help you out, whatever, see kind of the goodwill of humanity, so to speak, to uh, open Twitter and see a bunch of these people getting thousands and thousands of retweets and likes, the vast majority of whom are not even Lebanese, have never been to Lebanon, don't speak Arabic, or if they have been to Lebanon, they went there briefly, took some selfies, and then left that they are the ones who are dominating uh, these circles. It, it leaves a very, very bitter aftertaste. And if I wasn't more careful, I honestly by now would have been something, someone who would just tell you, fuck all of these leftists, they don't mean anything, it doesn't matter, all of, none of this matters. And some of the other people who might think like me, but then take it to the other extreme, would just end up becoming conservatives and right-wingers and whatever. Hmm. Like we're, we're dealing with very, very dangerous scenarios here. And it, it is very frustrating that so many people can be so casual in their language online without realizing the sort of damage that they're doing. It is very, very frustrating. I think, yes, on this, I think we can focus back on what we started with, which are your personal feelings about what's going on. I mean, from the picture you're describing, there is so many elements that are contributing to your, to your present state of mind. Obviously, uh, the incident itself is at the core from from what i understand and then there is being in a being sorry if i cut off again am i getting caught off here now uh yes now yeah then of course you are being exposed to a range of opinions which influence your state of mind i was wondering if mm, cut if off you, again uh, no it's just me kind of being quiet in between what I'm saying. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just, instead of going, oh, I tried to shut up. It's one of those things that you have <laughs> to learn when you're doing stuff like this. But anyway, <laughs> I was just saying, would you, would you describe your state of mind as being uh, survivor's guilt? Oh, for sure. That's like 101. <laughs> you know, I have, um, survivor's guilt is just what I start with, really. Um, of course, I have survivor's guilt. But the thing is that I had survivor's guilt even while in Lebanon All right. because I, I'm an Argentinian citizen. So I have a second passport. Uh, and this is something that, I mean, it's not as good, quote unquote, as a French passport, but it's good enough. If you need to leave in an emergency, they will lift you off. This is what happened during the 2006 war. We weren't lifted off, uh, but other people who we knew are Argentinian citizens were. And this is something that has become highly symbolic. Those with second passports are those that have their ticket out, really. Mm -hmm. And so they can even afford to be back in Lebanon in some ways, because in theory, if anything, if shit hits the fan, so to speak, they can leave. Mm. So survivor's guilt is there. It's me being physically outside of Lebanon just adds kind of like an extra layer to it, if you want. But even if I was in Lebanon, I would still be feeling it. For one, I don't live in Beirut in Lebanon. My house is not in Beirut. Beirut became a second home to me, but I'm from the mountains. The mountains are my home in Lebanon. And uh, many people felt it in the mountains, but for the most part, uh, it was the sea that absorbed it, the shock and the grain silos that were in the port absorbed the rest. And then obviously the parts of Beirut that were destroyed absorbed uh, the remaining shock. Mm -hmm. uh, this could have gone much worse, by the way, if there wasn't the Mediterranean Sea uh, to absorb some, a, lot, a large percentage of the shock. Um, but yeah, I mean, survivor's guilt is there. A lot of anger is there. A lot of um, um, 
you wouldn't necessarily see it in my face because um, I, I have a number of mental issues and they translate in themselves in some way into uh, me. I mean, facial, like my facial expressions, you would just see me as numb, really. It, won't really, it wouldn't really show necessarily. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a mix of anger. It's a make, mix of, um, I'm not sure if helplessness is the word or hopelessness even. I'm not, I'm not sure either of those two words are necessarily accurate. It's more a matter of you, you feel that something very grave and something very massive just happened. Mm -hmm. And your brain does, just does not have the computing power to digest it, really. Mm. Uh, on some level, it might be like purely biological. Uh, we just are unable to comprehend something so all-encompassing so quickly. That's why it takes time. That's why it's a process because the process allows for uh, contradictions to settle in. You know, like I've had so many self-contradictory um, feelings uh, over the past um, uh, nine, ten, nine, ten days now uh, that don't necessarily make much sense. I had uh, a feeling of like, I'm going to buy a flight go to go back to Lebanon and then I stopped myself. I wasn't going to do it anyway, but it just was this, uh, instinct. Another one was, and this will make no sense uh, to anyone listening, but like my uh, instinct was to get a flight to go to Scotland because I lived there for two years and in some ways it's isolated enough to, to um, and I have good friends who are there of course, and just kind of like to isolate me for the period of time that I need to. But I'm so, I'm someone who's so overly paranoid about everything that's with COVID-19, I'm just not going to even take a flight. Hmm. And it's just all of these mixed feelings. Like, honestly, this time around, and this might surprise some people who know me by now, but I don't really care about the Thomas Friedmans and the Tankies and those guys. They don't matter as much because I've been dealing with them much longer than some other Lebanese have, really. And that's due to Syria, first and foremost. But even like in the past year, a lot of Hong Kongers have had to deal with them and a number of Nicaraguans have had to deal with them. And now I'm seeing like Belarusians and Ukrainians and a number of other nationalities also have to deal with them. And this kind of gives me, gave me a, a sense of not being alone actually. Uh, at the time in 2015, 2016, when a number of these tankies were becoming more comfortable in their uh, opinions, let's say, uh, they weren't really being challenged by the people around them. There wasn't really that. And that was actually more painful than the tankies themselves because at the end of the day, it's just people saying shit. And that's Twitter. That's, that happens every day. It's really the, the fact that it doesn't come with a challenge. It's not responded to. It's kind of let go. And then you see friends of yours or people that you thought were allies um, just conversing with them as if nothing happened. Uh, this is what really stings, actually, more than the actual comments and their, them going on RT or Press TV or any of those stations. I mean, luckily, it, the percentage of people who actually take these TV stations too seriously is small. But that, that's not really the point. The point is to muddy the water. The point is to, is to uh, install enough doubt so that in the end, as the title of that book goes, like nothing is true and everything is possible. If not true and everything is possible, then not even the explosion is true. Like not even a bomb would be true. Your family dying wouldn't be true. The ho a hospital in Syria being bombed isn't true. It becomes very easy to just deny reality because you would have these entire structures, usually as media outlets like, you know, RT, Sputnik, uh, those guys, or others, you know, Fox News have done this, uh, whatnot. Um, you would have those creating an echo chamber. And if you have an echo chamber, it's easier to convince yourself that you're not causing much harm because the people around you are validating what you're saying. And this is what we find time and time again. There are so many people who've said the same thing on Lebanon. Uh, for the most part, I already have them blocked or they have blocked me. So I didn't even know about them until other people started commenting on them and sharing their stuff on Twitter, especially. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I guess it just goes back to what I meant before that these people, and I'm not even talking about those that are very obviously ill-meaning. You know, there's a handful of names that clearly 
they're probably getting a salary out of this. Like those are not the people I'm trying to convince. The people I'm trying to convince are the people listening to them and the people who are sharing their stuff uh, sometimes while being well-meaning or whatever, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you just survived a horror, if you just survived the destruction of your city um, with all of the connotations and losses and drama, sorry, and traumas that this entails, um, it, it is extremely difficult to wake up, uh, open Twitter, for example, and then see this about your city. And this is why I had posted a thread that got some attention as well about basically like the Lebanese are going to deal with what Syrians and Hong Kongers and the others have had to deal with for years now. My point with this was not just to say prepare yourself because I, I mean, people should prepare themselves. It's easier if you're prepared than not being prepared. That's, you know, just like a basic moral truism. But it's also my point was more that stop seeking their approval. Stop seeking their, uh, uh, their okay. We, we spend so much of our energy begging that Western leftists pay attention to us. And I'm not saying no energy should be spent. I'm not saying block the Western left, no. But I think it should be the other way around. I think that 90% of our energy should go towards talking to everyone else uh, and uh, mind you, I'm not even uh, dividing the world between the West and the non-West. This includes Black Lives Matter, for example. This includes Belarus, which is sort of like in between. You know, it's not a clear-cut delineation, and I refuse to reify the notions of the East and the West and all of that crap. Uh, it's, so it's more about um, focus. <laughs> I guess this is what I'm trying to tell people: focus. Focus on the Belarusians, focus on the Hong Kongers, on the Ukrainians, on the Nicaraguans, because what's happening there is interesting. What's happening there is something you should be mindful of. Some of the tactics that the cops over there are using are tactics that the cops have been using in their roots. People in Portland learned this. People in Portland and in Chile learned this. And in Belarus, now they're learning this. They learned this from Hong Kong. The tactics and the, you know, the shields and the umbrellas and the masks and uh, adding some humor with the uh, tennis rackets and whatnot. Hong Kongers have been doing this for months and months before it happened in Beirut. And for me, it's just a matter of rational. It's just reason. Uh, sorry, it's just rational for me to if 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 my goal is to overthrow this government and to pu to push for a different vision of what this country can be like then it just makes basic sense to look at what other people are also trying to do with their own places, with their own homes, with their own locales, you know? It's just, it goes beyond, for me, like nationality and citizenship and all of those things are tools that, for the most part, are toxic and dangerous and occasionally can be useful if used wisely. But that's it, really. I see them as tools. I don't see them as central to my identity. And this is how I, I genuinely believe that other people uh, would benefit if they adopt a similar model, or even a better model. I'm not saying I found the best model. But for now, this is the model that works for me, and it's a better model than the previous models that I had. I think one of the crucial aspects of the internationalization of this kind of repression, and I think it kind of comes to whether there's a division between East and West, as people, I think that there's a fundamental distinction between East and West. I don't want to push that point very further. I don't want to be one of those people who insist that, you know, we are like totally different. But I think sure, there's sure. a crucial difference is that as, I don't know, like as a Turkish person who is looking at Lebanon, I can see or we could be next, you know, this could be happening to us next, you know. Exactly. But if I were a um, French lefty looking at Lebanon or, I don't know, the Gezi protests in Istanbul even, or, uh, of course, Syria, I would never stop and think. And I, I don't see them thinking this way either when... when, when exactly, exactly. Like, this could, they, 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 it never occurs to them that this could be happening to them too. So yeah. I think... I agree. I think that's the most crucial aspect here instead of, I mean, this is kind of how I feel about the whole, the, the left misunderstanding of this thing. I, there was a time that I really believed in this international idea of the left and I saw them as being uh, the immediate, I suppose, allies when it comes to mm -hmm. accomplishing something good 
Uh, these are really vague words, I realize, but I mean, I hope. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. I saw them as like the first allies to go to when something like that happens because, you know, we've read Marx, we've read all the kind of like the tradition of progressive revolutionary politics that was very much anchored in that part of the world. And when I mm -hmm. saw them not caring about it at all, it, it, it was heartbreaking. But now mm -hmm. we have come to such a point of saturation. I think people from my generation who, uh, who saw the war in Iraq and thought of the international left as kind of like an ally to stop that war and so on. Now we've come to a point of mm -hmm. saturation where this, we have to face the fact that they were never, like, like in that meme, you know, it never was. They never were our no, I agree. naturalized. I agree. And it, you know. Even the war in Iraq is a very good example of this because I mentioned this in my conversation with the Arab Tyrant Manual on, on the tankies and that kind of thing, is that I had to sort of deconstruct uh, why did I feel such a... I mean, I was, you know, 12 when it happened, but in retrospect, like in the years uh, following the invasion of Iraq, um, I grew up in the aftermath in some ways. And so the left that I started to know are uh, the leftists whose main thing at the time was opposing the war on Iraq. That was the main thing. That was the main um, framework, if you want, in addition to supporting the Palestinian cause. That's, that's more of an evergreen thing kind of thing. And I had to ask myself in recent years, like, were these people actually, and I'm, I'm saying these people, I, I, I know that it was a diverse coalition and, some, and I don't want to focus too much on the details here, but a number of the people who were in those coalitions and in the Stop the War movement in the UK, for example, these are people who have openly supported either back then or since then the sort of regimes that are crushing us. And this then poses the question, like, what matters? What is this thing that actually matters? You know, there is a, um, a film by Godard in which there is Notre Musique, in which there is uh, Mahmoud Darwish in it. And there is a scene that is stuck in my mind permanently. And people can just type Mahmoud Darwish Notre Musique or Mahmoud Darwish Godard on YouTube, they'll find it. Um, he's uh, being, it's a conversation that he's having with this Israeli person. And so the actress is playing an Israeli uh, Jewish woman. And Mahmoud Darwish tells her at some point, that the interest in us, the, the Palestinians, comes from the world's interest in you, and in you as in, in the state of Israel. And in more broader sense, he meant like the Jewish question, the anti-Semitism in, in Europe, all of that stuff. That's what he meant more broadly. But I think what he touched upon, and on, I wish that scene was more expanded upon, but it was a very brief scene. But my, my interpretation of it was that I think he understood that if Israel was not the enemy of the Palestinians, a lot of the people who care about the Palestinians wouldn't care about the Palestinians. And this is a point that is usually made by people on the right for very cynical purposes. And because they, say, they use it in that sense, and they use it to say basically that no criticism of Israel should be allowed and that kind of um, other extreme, this has, I think, pushed... Uh, many leftists essentially to not even look at that um, uh, at that viewpoint, which is Mahmoud Darwish's viewpoint, not some random uh, pro-Israel right winger in America, for example, which is what m most people would associate it with right now. Um, but the point, the, the point, the what I'm trying to get at is that this is the same reason for me that explains, if you want why there's been such a stunted and muted approach towards Syrians at, at best and at worst being obviously openly supporting the Assad regime. It's because it's him doing it to quote-unquote his own people. And the Syrians are the private property of the government because this is how a lot of the Western left views the world. They view the world through nation states. They view the world through uh, political parties and presidents and prime ministers and kings and whatnot that quite literally own the bodies of the citizens or the people who live there. And it makes complete sense with Israel-Palestine because Israel quite uh, almost literally owns the bodies of Palestinians. Israel controls where they can go, 
kills them when the, when when it wants, and I'm saying it as a state essentially, and maims them for the most part, restricts their freedom of movement, tortures them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so from that framework, it's relatively easy to just oppose it. And of course, I do oppose it. I hope this goes without saying. And but with Syria, it's it kind of like you need to take an extra step because now you're no longer talking about X versus Y. You're talking about X versus X. But you would only be talking about X versus X if you believe, again, that a state owns the people in which the, in, that live in that state, that live within the, the boundaries of the nation state. If you genuinely believe that Syrian refugees, sorry, Syrian citizens before they become refugees were owned by the Assad regime, then it becomes much easier for you to romanticize them and or scapegoat them, just go either to extremes when they, when they reach your lands, which is what we've been seeing. For the most part, if we talk about Syrian refugees in Europe or Syrian refugees in America or whatnot, I suppose in Turkey to a certain extent as well, uh, it's either uh, they're amazing people who contribute to society, and of course they have to contribute. If they don't contribute, they're not worthy of humanity. Or they are uh, the other extreme. They're demographic threats. They bring Islam to our shores and all of those stuff that you, uh, people hear in the media. And this only happens if they are dehumanized before they leave Syria. This is only possible if, while in Syria, they don't matter. And on that front, both the left, or the so-called left and the so-called right, have been completely identical. There's been very little difference between the two when it comes to that. And so this is why, for me, in Lebanon, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I know from now that they're all going to support Hezbollah. That's obvious. You have, on, on the symbolic front, you have, what, Macron on one side and Hezbollah on the other. If, that's, if this is the game... They're just going to stand with Hezbollah. It's cooler. You know, it's nicer. No one's going to stand with Macron. Doesn't, it makes no sense. Rather on the other hand, on the other hand as you know, as, I don't know, as a Middle Easterner, you find yourself uh, having to choose a side between those who support Hezbollah and those who support Macron. That should not be a, a choice that you have to make. Exactly. 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 That is, well, that is the frustration at the end of it. That exactly. You're either, you're either working with a bunch of tepid liberals, uh, mm -hmm. as in terms of kind of like, you know, because you need like an international ideological framework for being able to connect with political activists in another part of the world. If you agree mm -hmm. on the situation of people on the ground, a lot of the times it's the liberals who are kind of a bit more supportive of the Syrian revolution and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Then mm -hmm. you find mm -hmm. yourself with them and they will start saying stuff like, Oh, but you know, he's really a good Lebanese. He's really a good Turkish person who wants to contribute to our society. They would be completely blind uh, to, to your Absolutely. position over there. So it's, it's just really, Absolutely. It's a difficult place to be in. It is. And that is, the, that is the cost. That the cost at the end of the day is that these narratives take up so much space and so much air from the... the um, you know, <laughs> the idea space, I guess, mm. that you end up not having much left to do with. Like, how much you, time you can up, I spend? You, exactly. You end up wasting all your time trying to decide where, what you should be closer to, whereas you should be yeah. closer to the situation that you're experiencing. You should be closer to your own trauma and to, to, to what you're yes. doing instead of yeah. how to express it to... To someone who is irrelevant, essentially. Yes, yeah. And that's why I'm not participating in any of these anymore. I saw what it did to Syrian friends. I saw what it's doing right now to a number of Hong Kongers who I've gotten to know as well. And I know what's coming. You know, I know that if, if things get worse in Lebanon, which they might, uh, you will have more and more of um, a lot of drifters, a lot of people who will start calling themselves Lebanon watchers, like the Syria watchers and whatever. And these are people who will uh, be as passionate about Lebanon as they are about crosswords, puzzles and sports and whatnot. And it yes. will just become, uh, you know, another Again. tagline on their, on their bio. Yeah, it's just another point of their identity on, you know, wake up in the morning, check a bit on Lebanon and the afternoon go to work, you know, Absolutely. that kind of thing. And well, we are, it's this kind of dehumanization that is the, um, the real cost. Really. Absolutely. We are approaching the end of, of our broadcast. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think the, today's lesson, I suppose, what I've learned today 
is the idea that we should be increasing the kind of networks of people who understand each other's problems and traumas and political deadlocks as opposed to trying to fit ourselves into somebody else's narrative. I think we can come away with this idea from today. Yeah. I agree. I agree. It's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. And this is the first time that we're talking and we just went straight into this. Uh, and it's, it's, been, it's been fantastic, I think. Same here. Thank you for having me. Likewise. Thanks for coming.